You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Aryan Shuti, who is the founder and managing partner of Core Innovation Capital. He's on a mission to increase economic emancipation and is a passionate advocate for market-based financial access and empowerment. He is a senior advisor to the Financial Health Network, formerly CFSI, the nation's leading authority on financial health, which he helped start back in 2004. He's also served on the CFPB's Consumer Advisory Board and currently serves on the Fed's Consumer Advisory Council. Through CFSI and CORE, he's invested in some of the most innovative companies serving the underbanked, and several of Aryan's investments have been acquired or gone public. We can put the list in the show notes. We spoke to Aryan when he was in his office in LA at Hollywood and Vine. He says a famous intersection. You may hear some traffic and background noise. We apologize for that. Also want to mention, he went to MIT and Lewis and Clark College. We speak mainly about a piece he wrote for Medium called How Missionary Are You Actually? Which I think has so many insights per sentence. It is mind-blowing. How dense and how much information is in this short piece. So I thought it was worth a deep dive on the podcast, especially for founders thinking about how to hold themselves accountable to the mission, how to make sure it lives on past your initial excitement and those moments when you say, let's go climb that mountain, let's go achieve this thing, let's go serve these customers. So without further ado, let's get started. I think you'll enjoy it, so please stay tuned. Arian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Miles. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your piece on Medium. How missionary are you actually? But before we do, just to give context and for everyone to know your perspective and how you come to this, I'd love to chat a little bit about CORE, maybe with uh, how you started it. Sure. Kind of by accident. I'd been an operator for a decade, like you, in the ed tech space with an expensive failure, also a company that went public and a company that we sold. And I was looking for my next big thing. Someone gave me a book about Muhammad Yunus and his journey in microfinance in Bangladesh. And that was really transformative to me. And so I, I wanted to do something in consumer finance that was kind of you know economically uplifting. Could you do microfinance here in the US? Short answer, no and was asking for people who are doing cool stuff in the US around this. And I was introduced to the folks at Shorebank, which was a community bank that was started in like the 60s that was greenlining where people had been redlining and they were you know, kind of hippie bankers. And for some reason they put their arm around me and I joined up with this woman, Jennifer Tesher and started the Center for Financial Services Innovation, now called the Financial Health Network. And that was really my education and kind of, you know, economic inclusion in the US, economic empowerment. And I was making small kind of angel checks off the side of my desk and looking for my next big thing. I never got it. And I really enjoyed the angel investing. And so I decided to have my next startup be a venture fund. 
And I think most people don't think about venture funds as a startup, but you very <laughs> much had to go through a very arduous fundraising slog and build a vision that you had to sell to so many different people in order to start it. Yeah. Yeah. It was not easy. You know, when, when I, when I started doing this, it was 2008, 2009 and, you know, financial services was not the most popular because it was just post-crisis subprime financial services. And I was focusing on the un and underbanked, super not popular. And then to, and then to add insult to injury, I was raising money for something that arguably had charitable objectives. And so the idea of, you know, merging church and state and looking at both profitability and positive social externalities was also kind of anathema. So it was a slog. And why were you ultimately successful? Some, a lot of good luck. Uh, the pity of some people in, in good places and some misguided perseverance. <laughs> I'm getting a kick out of misguided perseverance. I wonder how many great companies have been built because no one knew better than to just keep trying. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like, well, I don't, I can't, uh, well, it's not, that's not totally true. There was a startup I was thinking about at the time, a more traditional startup. I have since invested in it called Yada. Uh, a prizeling savings idea where you can kind of combine savings with lottery buying behavior. So I got close to starting a company that did that. I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I did what I did. And I've invested now in an amazing team that's doing that for real and is growing like there's no tomorrow. So that, that would have been my alternative if ultimately, I think it was a team at Goldman Sachs who took pity on me. And when they said, we'll take 20% of your fund, everyone else who'd kind of been, you know, hanging around the hoop fell in and and we way oversubscribed our first fund. Well, having a brand name like Goldman Sachs be your anchor really does help put a fund together. Now, this was at a time when I think Goldman Sachs was even more respected, but I don't know if they were known for impact investing. Am I, am I misremembering? No, you're not. I was, I was a controversial uh, and then irrelevantly small corner of a of a kind of cool renegade group within Goldman called the Urban Investment Group, which does mostly affordable housing and real estate stuff. And so I was like a weird little asset in a, you know, like $20 billion real estate portfolio. Well, I'm sure you've made them some money and it's it's worked out. So that's that's wonderful that they were willing to step forward for you. When yeah. did you start with your impact externality report? The day we started, really. So we, you know, like I, I started before core and I had my little, you know, kind of prototype fund uh, at CFSI, Financial Health Network, and started very clunkily reporting on, you know, obviously the financial returns and then also equally clunkily on our positive externalities. And then we really internalized it when we formed core and we've stayed with it and consistently for the last now 11 years, every year, we obligate all of our uh, companies to do a once a year data dump over and above their usual stuff. And we keep it fairly lightweight so that we don't suffocate anyone with this, which many other people do in my mind. So we've been tracking it for over a decade now, which is really exciting. 
Yeah, I've always been impressed at how thoughtfully you seem to put it together. You've got a side letter with the company, so you're getting access to the data, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting it together in a very structured way. I've also heard you say that you have an oversight board. So any tips about how to put this kind of reporting process together? Yeah, I've... I think we do it very differently than other people and 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 we try so we we try to do it well. We also recognize that it's always going to be imperfect and it's always going to be a work in progress. We believe in Occam's razor, so to pick the simpler versus the more complex solution when there is a choice. We believe in creative destruction and so rather than kind of perfect academic rigor, we're fine to always be tinkering and improving it. Yeah, and then we put together a small group of folks whose job it is to call our bluff, to hold our feet to the fire, to insist on intellectual honesty, and and in a way we economically incentivize them to do that. So they basically end up scoring us annually on a one to a hundred score, and the, the the lower they score us, the way we pay them is we give them we make a donation to a charity of their choice. And so the lower we score, the higher the donation. And so, right, like they can give, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 grand to a charity, depending on how low or high we score, uh, which is the delta that we take out of our impact bonus. So 100% of our bonus is tied to this impact study. So if we were to score 95, I'd get 95% of our bonus, 5% would go to, you know, the charity of our impact audit committee's choices. So we've kind of tried to gamify it. In a way, you know, but it's really meant for them to just keep us honest, not cloak ourselves too proudly in the flag of, you know, of do-goodery and to just, you know, always keep it tight and smart and as best as we possibly can. I really like that structure. They're basically splitting your bonus pool between you and a charity, depending on whether they think you've performed well for society is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really fun and rewarding. And, and has provided really interesting insights along the way, sometimes small ones, right? Like do tactical things differently, sometimes bigger ones. Like during COVID, I really walked away from a, from a decade long view in which we have through our portfolio companies 10X what we thought we could do. Uh, when I started Core, I was hoping we could do like $6 billion in social impact over the first decade. And after the first decade, we've done about $67 billion. And one of my kind of sobering ahas is it's a rounding error. It's a lot more than I expected, but it's but we're not really making a dent. And so that's really led me to think a lot about how could you create a trillion dollars over the next decade? Because I think at that order of magnitude, you are really making a dent. Any ideas you want to share? <laughs> well, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, but I've gotten really excited and interested in the idea of a basic income product and to marry that with a retirement product on the observation that our retirement is a train wreck in the making and how ill-prepared the majority of Americans are for retirement and how the shift from pensions to 401ks has been ostensibly victorious, but ultimately really left our country and the majority of people high and dry for what is going to be a longer life for most of us. 
And so I'm exploring creating kind of a next generation basic income, kind of a private, think of it as a private pension uh, retirement alternative. Wow. I can't wait to discuss that more with you and hear how it goes. We've had Andrew Yang on the podcast twice. He's one of the rare guests who've come on twice and talked a lot about UBI. He's a real inspiration. Yeah. You also mentioned the Grameen Bank and microfinance as being an inspiration for you. We've had Paul Niehaus from Give Directly, which is, you know, direct cash transfers rather than loans, which I think is the next generation of Grameen, in my opinion. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you'll have to discuss that with Muhammad Jonas. Yes. Um, I have a friend from undergrad who did some studying on microfinance, and he strongly argued that it was a smoothing effect, which can be important in someone's life if they have shocks, but didn't actually lead to long-term income growth or GDP growth. So I know that's been debated and I'm not current on Mm -hmm. the literature, but I've been fairly persuaded that direct cash transfers do make a big difference. If someone doesn't have money and you give them money, they're better off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's an ongoing debate that we need to be having here in the States. Yes. Now you talked about the oversight board, keeping you honest and making sure you don't wrap yourself in the flag of do-goodery. And in the piece that we're going to talk about here on Medium, you talk about something called the lazy missionary. Can Mm -hmm. you say more about what that is? (laughs) Yeah. Haven't you noticed, Miles, that like every fintech these days is a mission-driven startup that is obsessed with financial health? I mean, like, it certainly is popular. Yes. Uh, you know, find one that isn't almost. And I don't mean to take away anything from people's ambitions at all or, or to uh, deprive anyone of genuine missionary ambitions. I think it, it plays a big part in why you would leave a less risky job in favor of a highly risky one. But ultimately, I've, I have found that the lion's share, and I could in many ways include myself in that, you know, like are well-intended, but relatively undisciplined in how seriously we take this aspiration of being mission-driven. And I'm certainly not the first, nor will be the last, to advocate for the commercial power of being mission-driven. Right? I mean, think of Jim Collins and good to great. I mean, that's talking, you know, like those are purpose built organizations that have a cause greater than pure profitability, you know, as the driving factor for their commercial success. And so, it, you know, you needn't even be philanthropically minded, at least, you know, to advocate for mission driven companies. So the, indeed, I've, I, I think if we're honest, many of us are lazy about it. And so I started looking at, you know, a number of the companies that I admire most, both in and out of our portfolio and talking to those founders and kind of put together a series of ahas of what I think are the best practices of, of the ones who are not lazy and who are hardcore about it. Right. And you've got quite a list here. It's amazing. We'll link to it in the show notes. People can read. 
One of the things you mentioned is putting in the performance review process. And is that just for senior management or you're saying everyone in the organization is measured against how the company is doing on the mission? I think everyone, everyone should be. And the degree to which it plays relative to their individual performance will vary dramatically from where they sit in the organization, where you know the folks at the bottom of the organizational period, pyramid have less ability to impact those. It should still be present so as to connect them with the greater mission. And those at the very top, like the CEO, you know, like are almost entirely graded on that right there's there's comps to this kind of thing you know thinking about uh, performance reviews even if you take mission out of it but the same idea applies right right and you said that a number of mission-driven companies don't write down their mission what what does that mean what are they doing instead you know not they don't write it down they loosely talk about it they don't define it they don't put metrics by which to achieve it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a loosely held storytelling device, you know, which is used for you know, kind of for culture building. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to me how many don't write it down, or if they do, it's, you know, once in a pitch deck and then never again. I see. I see. So they're not serious about it continually talking about it, bringing it to the fore and embedding it into their activities on a regular basis. Yeah, none of these things are really binary, right? I mean, there right. are shockingly many who, who have never written it down. And then there are many more who, who will write it down, you know, like on a, on a napkin and, and never again. And it's really the ones for whom it remains an ongoing and daily drumbeat who are able to build, you know, actually successfully build their culture around it, develop processes around it, make decisions around it, use it as their, uh, truly as their operational North Star. I think that's a great phrase. I, I do like the North Star uh, as being a good analogy for people. Now, the second part of your piece talks about aligning your business model. And in fact, you talk about how core in your mercenary impact report calculates the correlation between social impact and enterprise value. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how to do that? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, basically, if core is an experiment in doing well and doing good, you know, the doing well part is easy to measure in the scheme of things, right? Gap provides us a framework by which to to measure that. And the doing good part is hard to measure. And we've always believed in a non-concessionary approach. So we don't want to take, you know, lower returns in favor of greater social good for a variety of reasons. I'm happy to talk about it if you care. And so ultimately that means then that if, if we can do well and good, that there is a correlation between the two. And so we decided to actually just start measuring it and so, you know, we, we, look at the, we look at metrics for profitability and enterprise value creation and look at our metrics for how a company creates positive externalities. And then, and then we look at a correlation between those numbers 
and you need a number of years to be able to, to do a, you know, a correlation. And so you need three years plus. And so, you know, like we can't in our earlier, you know, when we first write an investment, but after three years, we're able to start looking at it. And, you know, it just it becomes a, a measurement where you look, you know, where you look between zero and one, how strong is the correlation? So this is the externalities for society measured in dollars and the enterprise value for core measured in dollars. And you're doing the correlation between the two. Yeah. And for a company that's a startup, they would think about their externalities or like customer benefit generated. And then uh, that on one hand, on the other hand, revenue or profit and correlate the two. Yeah, so the so the the externality, an easy example would be, you know, is this how 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 much cheaper is this loan versus you know the most common alternatives, the benchmark uh, that if this company didn't exist, you know, a consumer would be using. How often do they use the loan? And then you can add up over a year, right? Like this company is reasonably saving a consumer X. So that's that's a way that you might measure the, the positive externality. And then we look at a combination of revenue growth and enterprise value growth for, you know, how is the company doing from a financial perspective? Okay. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. And then you also give some examples of how you can align your business model to avoid penalty fees or other pricing mechanisms that put you uh, adverse to the company. And I've, I've had the most experience in the banking industry with NSF fees, which do put you adverse to customers in some ways and very frustrating, even as an entrepreneur, because if that's the predominant way that things are priced in the market, it can be tough to change that model. It can. And, and there are so many ways to levy fees. And often people only look at how a company is doing when everything goes well and everyone pats themselves on the back for being very progressive and few people look under the hood for you know what are the circumstances and what are the economics associated with adverse or derogatory situations right like someone's late on the bill or defaults or whatnot and that's often when you really separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of who's really mission-driven and who's thinking extra hard and building the systems by which to be both commercially successful and more consumer-friendly and benign at the same time, which in some cases takes, you know, real creativity in like being cleverer about collections or takes real vision to be able to think beyond the you know, the near-term value that a fee will give you and think about, say, retention and longer-term LTV that you get by being really customer-focused. So if I could restate what I think you're saying, don't just focus on the average or when things go well. Also think about 
the misuse of your product or the pathological or the unlucky case or the consumer that doesn't understand, how do they end up using the product and what implications does that have for their expense that they incur or trouble that they're incurring? Is that right? That's right. Well put. Now, in number three, you were alluding to this already as you're getting to it. Number three is about long-term interest. So if you can think about retention, if you can think about the long-term value of a customer, perhaps that can drive you towards making choices that'll be in both of your interests. Do you have any good examples of this? Yeah. Think about kind of an obvious example in the, in the company Opportune. Opportune you know, is a subprime lender and they do so at a lower APR, dramatically lower. And, you know, it's easy for them to tout, you know, like our APR is lower than, you know, someone else's, but a really powerful longer term view on their product involves, for example, how someone is better off as a function of having used their product a number of times by building credit. Many subprime lenders don't report to the credit bureaus and the opportune and some other progressive ones do. And that is a very powerful feature for someone who lives off the grid and out of the financial mainstream to be able to build or strengthen or grow your credit and credit score is, you know, is, is an extremely empowering metric that for, you know, the future gives you access to lower cost capital, lower cost insurance, lower cost mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. And then you also talk about here in long-term interest requires you to really understand the customer better. And so I think you're challenging founders to continue the customer development process beyond once they think they've launched and have their first product out there that the founder personally stay engaged yeah. with understanding the needs of customers. Is that right? Both the founder and the team, you know, as, as an organization gets bigger, it's also easier for the team to become more divorced from the business and some of the better organizations, you know, make it, you know, provide lots of venues by which, Every employee is in touch with, understands, engages with the customer through a variety of means. I describe some uh, in the blog post. So it's not just the founder, but it's really the organization more broadly. And it is indeed the thinking about long, the long-term needs of your customer, I think really allows you to be more in line with your mission. And so it's really long-term thinking versus short-term thinking that I'm advocating and, you know, like I, we did not sadly invest in Remitly, um, but Matt Oppenheimer, uh, who founded and still leads Remitly, you know, has, has repeatedly talked about how they really think about the long-term, look at the long-term effects of their customers and build products to address the long-term needs of their customers in a way that I really, really respect. I don't know that company that well. I'll have to look into it. They're a remittances company. So they, they're a, a Western Union challenger to send money you know, home to your home country for immigrants. Which I think is directly on the United Nations SDG list is lowering yeah. the cost of remittances. Yeah. 
That's right. Well, and I mean, think think how many poor how many poor people come from poor countries to rich countries, do the worst work possible, and send a huge amount of their scant paycheck back home at a significant fee. Think of how many countries their number one import is through remittances. You know, there's dozens of countries for whom remittances is the number one kind of GDP influx through all these, you know, workers, you know, moving to Europe and the US, et cetera. Yeah. And it's extremely important use of the financial system and the costs are still too high. So glad to hear it's good companies working on it. Totally. One of the things that you also, uh, I've heard you say, I don't think you mentioned this piece is designing products. So it aligns with the best version of ourselves. So it's understanding the customer where they are, but also inspiring them to behave uh, in their own long-term self-interest. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often think about, yeah, indeed, kind of allowing us, aligning us with our better selves as opposed to our worst selves, right? And often, financially speaking, you know, we make short-term decisions because of some impulse to buy, you know, like a, a widget. And, you know, I don't know how many pitches I've seen. I'm sure you've seen them too, Miles, where, you know, like there's kind of the premise of like, you know, if if X were to save, you know, like a latte a day, you know, like and just put that away and have that compound or whatever, um, or, you know, put it into the mortgage or a small business, you know, the good you could do. And I'm always shocked with how few founders and how relatively little creativity goes into product design to, al- to align customers with their better selves as opposed to their worst selves. Do you have any examples of that going well? Yada, the company I mentioned earlier, is, is a really interesting one because it basically converts a vice-like behavior I want to win a life-changing amount of money by buying a lottery ticket, which is a totally regressive tax, largely on the poor, and and converts that into an asset-building behavior. And so the way it works for them is every 25 bucks you put into a savings account and keep it there for a week, you get a chance to win a $10 million prize, a Tesla, and you know hundreds of smaller prizes. And so, right, like you, that I feel like that is a literal alignment from vice-like behavior to virtue, virtuous behavior from a financial perspective. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm certainly more aware of the opposite, the anti-pattern where fintech companies or others are aligning with your short-term impulses and not necessarily in your long-term interests. I won't say the name of the company, but if you make it really easy to trade options on your mobile phone, a lot of people are going to lose money and I'm not sure it's good for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, speaking of, I was just thinking about GameStop. Yes. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) You're saying that such democratization of the markets can drive extreme fluctuations in stock price. Like we saw yeah. with GameStop, that's what you're alluding to. Yeah, or you know, same in crypto. Right. Crypto is super exciting. I think it's a transformative technology set, 
and is largely driven by completely speculative behavior, a lot of it from unaccredited investors who have zero idea of what they're buying and are just playing the numbers, kind of like buying a lottery ticket. You know, we hear about the winners because those are exciting stories and the lion's share are losers. Just like people who pick, you know, who buy options, just like people who pick stocks for that matter, right? Then the, the house wins. Right. And are you investing in blockchain companies moving forward? I know you had a big hit. Um, are you investing in tokens directly? Uh, we haven't yet. We are certainly open to it. I'm very interested in the infrastructure. I think the infrastructure will be transformative. And I think a number of DeFi variations will be transformative. And so we've, we've put our toe in the water with some more infrastructure-like companies that we think will ultimately benefit the everyday consumer. Like recently, we invested in a company called Conduit, which is basically making DeFi available to fiat-based companies to build it into their solutions so that you can offer the two side by side. Like a payment processor almost? Like a, like a crypto savings function side by side with your fiat savings capabilities. Gotcha. Now, turning to number four in your piece is about measuring their externalities. I feel like we've talked about that enough, unless there's more you want to say on that. No, it's boring, but it's so important. And, and it's such a simple matter. Peter Drucker is so right about, you know, what gets measured gets managed. Everyone kind of assumes it's true and then doesn't do the actual just writing it down and just doing the measurement. And the, just the process of doing so is so valuable and so important. I can't stress it enough. And our best companies are so good at it. Our best companies presented in all of their board meetings to all of their stakeholders, not just the self-prescribed hippy-dippy ones like Core, and bring a broader set of stakeholders along on it, which really allows them to make you know, macro decisions about, you know, like, do I sell or do I go public to micro, micro decisions, right? Like, do we build this product or that product? And you can't do that without data. Now, this is fascinating to me. You're saying it's really important to communicate about your social impact, your positive externalities with those investors, those board members, those other stakeholders, maybe your bank, your lender, that don't have an explicit orientation that way and aren't asking for that information, you're advocating share it with them anyway. And why is that? If there is merit to your mission from, uh, from a company building perspective or why you started it or why a number of your employees work there as opposed to take any other job, then you better bring everyone along on that reason. And the temptation is too much so to just, you know, comply with the requests of those who are asking, like Core asks, it's much more powerful and just and tremendously compelling to present that to the broader stake, to the broader set of stakeholders. And the truth is, right, like Core and others, many others, are mission-driven themselves. That doesn't prevent 
someone who is not at a mission-driven firm from caring about the mission deeply. Most people do, right? Like most people want to do well ethically. And if given the chance, would like to dial up those ethics and dial up those positive externalities, who wouldn't really, right? And so there are so many champions. And in fact, most champions probably don't work at mission-driven firms, self-proclaimed mission-driven firms. And so you're both giving them permission and the ability to hold you to account on, you know, on, on a broader set of objectives. I think it's a wonderful point that you can inspire people who are investors, even with a financial mandate, to be rooting for your mission, to be a part of it, and to work extra hard to help you um, because of that extra motivation. I, I think that's wonderful. It's a great insight. Yeah, there's so many closet missionaries out there, right, who may not uh, cloak themselves in the flag, but who are very much driven that way. And yeah, too, too few of them are, are really given the license to care about that or to think about it or to, you know, like design a company around that. Now, number five in your piece is create a Ulysses Pact, <laughs> which is really committing yourself in a fundamental way to the yeah. mission and make it hard for you to back out of it. Yeah. I think the main example of this is like putting it in your formation documents or some sort of public certification. You mentioned B Corp um, and certified B Corps. Have you have you seen many of your companies make Ulysses Pact? Not so explicitly, which is why I love this idea. And I got this analogy from Jimmy Chen, the leader of Propel, also not in our portfolio, but a company and, and a CEO I admire tremendously. And, but when you start looking at it, there are lots of ways to make a Ulysses Pact, right? I mean, you can organize yourself as a B Corp, maybe more powerfully, you can make a big to-do publicly about it in your PR push, right? About what a mission-driven company you are. And, you know, arguably such a titular approach might hold you to greater account than, you know, the fairly innocuous and kind of behind the scenes B Corp status. So there are lots of ways to do it. And many of our portfolio companies do make a big to-do and have, you know, fancy stories written about them in the tech crunches of the world about how mission-driven and lofty their aspirations are. And that is a form of a Ulysses, of a Ulysses pact as well, because you can, I mean, like, and we hear it again and again, right? Like if that's the case and you start, you know, and you start drifting, your employees will leave. And like, and, you know, we don't need to talk about employees leaving at this, in this environment, right? Given how many people are shifting jobs in this, in this COVID world that we're living in. And so I think there are many more companies that actually have implicit forms of Ulysses Pact that may not even be as organized as how they're incorporated. It's because they've told their employees to expect certain kind of behavior from them and their employees yeah. will hold them accountable. Yeah. We've seen this in Silicon Valley and some of the big tech companies, even when there's not an explicit pact, if employees start believing that something is outside of the employee's personal ethics, you've seen these petitions, these marches, I almost want to say, or at least kerfuffles that I think do impact, at least at the margin, what kind of businesses or what products these large tech companies are doing. 
Yeah, which which gets you into an even broader set of considerations, right? I mean, like, how, what's that company's role in the political debate? I'm not talking about that, right? I'm not taking a position on that at all. I've seen very compelling arguments either way, but really, what I'm talking about is like the company's raison d'être, right? Like its its mission, its role in society, its role on its end users' lives, and holding yourself. To account from the CEO to the you know to the teller customer support person you know at the at the end of the of the process, right? You also mentioned taking the founders pledge. We've had the founder of Founders Pledge on a previous podcast and talked about that some. How do you see that fitting in here? We lead by example, and so you know the the actions that that our founders take, large and small, public and uh, interpersonal, are so important in, in building a great culture and building a great company. And so I think you say a lot by joining something like the Founders Pledge about your values, about why you're doing this, about your role in society, about the way, you know, like the, the type of leadership that you endorse by your own actions. Yeah, that's inspiring. And your BHAG of a trillion dollars in externalities is also extremely inspiring. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of you sharing your wisdom here on the podcast. For what little it's worth, I appreciate very much, Miles, you're including me amongst the, the giants that you've interviewed. You've had a really great cast of characters come across your podcast, so I'm really grateful for your including me. Thank you so much for coming on. Can people follow up with you? Is it online somewhere? What's the best way to keep track of your goings on? Uh, you can sign on to our newsletter at corevc.com. If you're doing or building something in this space, you can shoot me a note at a at corevc.com. You can call Miles, and he knows how to find me. So there's, you know, there's lots of ways. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Miles. It was fun. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.